This is AudibleGate. The journey to a fair deal for authors and narrators, with your hosts, Jacob and Jason. Bringing you the real facts and people behind this truly mind-blowing cluster And Bezos said in 1999, Customer experience, selection, ease of use, low prices, plus great customer service. And with our uh, toys and electronics, we have a 30-day return policy. So Bezos made his customer service and his 30-day return policy, which did not apply to audiobooks later on. And Bezos separated the audiobook profits under the table from the royalties above it. And it was so. Bezos called this good business. And Carrigan said, This is a golden age for data. Companies are embracing data-driven strategies across the enterprise. And it was a golden age for Audible, but not for the rights holders and producers. Hello, and welcome back to the official Audible Gate podcast, supporting the equitable rights movement. Now, before we start, unfortunately, Jason couldn't join us this week due to a family bereavement. He'll hopefully be back next episode. We'd like to take a moment, and please feel free to join in, to offer his family our condolences and best wishes at this difficult time. In the AudibleGate podcast's premiere episode, we spoke about what ACX and Audible are, how audiobooks are made and distributed using these platforms, and how their policies and payment plans for rights holders and authors and narrator producers when working under royalty share agreements are pretty financially one-sided, and not in the creative's favour. We also touched on the fact that the percentage breakdowns stated in the contracts are seemingly not followed in practice. As a side note, I'd like to clarify that throughout the podcast, we will be using the terms rights holder and author interchangeably, and the same with narrator and producer. We then spoke to Australian author and hashtag AudibleGate founder Susan May about The Glitch, which revealed all was not as it seems when it came down to Audible's return policy, which was in practice more akin to a library system, ultimately resulting in royalty payments being taken away from the content creators. Susan told us about how the AudibleGate campaign has already been successful in improving Audible's return policy, Rights holders will no longer lose royalties from books returned after seven days, rather than the 365 days it was before, as well as an additional 5% payout of all royalties in December 2020, even though, in her opinion, 5% of nothing is nothing. Audible and ACX's contracts have also become less restrictive as of the new year, January 2021, and Susan and her team are continuing to keep the momentum rolling. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, we recommend jumping back to get all of this straight from the horse's mouths. All three of ours. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, Jason, I'm sorry, my jokes have not improved in your absence. I tried to grab the bull by the horns, but it just didn't happen. Yeah, making jokes is a lot worse when there's no one to even laugh at you, let alone with you. So, moving right along and forgetting that, this week I'll be talking to Colleen Cross. Colleen has been working really hard over the past few months to delve into the figures and numbers that make up royalty payments, 
to try and work out just how exactly Audible are paying out to their independent authors and producers versus how much they claim to be paying. So let's bring in Colleen. Hello, Colleen. How are you doing? Oh, great, Jacob. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. For the sake of our international audience of listeners, could you just tell us whereabouts in the world are you? I am on the west coast of Canada. I'm looking out my window right now and I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean. It's just about to be spring here and we're starting to see some daffodils and and so on are blooming right now. It's yeah, definitely starting to feel like spring. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing nothing nicer than seeing those snowdrops pop up first thing in, you know, when the weather starts to get a bit warmer. 100%. So, Colleen, could you just tell us a bit about who you are really and how did you get involved with Audiblegate? So, my background is I'm an accountant. I've been one for over 30 years and uh, I you know, right full time now, but that's my background. And I guess how I got involved is I had been looking at, you know, my numbers for a while. And I I was always sort of wondering if I could get more details about what was on those earnings reports. But I'm a busy author, like everybody is, we basically run our own indie publishing business. and, And so I just never really had time. And, you know, as long as the money was coming in, I didn't look at it too closely. You know, what can you do? It's a huge corporation. It's the biggest corporation on earth is the parent company, actually, owned by the richest man in the world. And so as upset as I was, I didn't think there was much I could do. Anyways, when this returns issue dropped that Susan May referred to, that's the first time I had heard of the group. And so I joined and then it became apparent to me that, you know, I had some a skill set that could probably be useful, but I wasn't ready to, you know, to do anything in the group, I wanted to first explore the numbers myself and see if there was anything there because I, you know, I don't want to make claims of, of things that may or may not be true until I check them out. And, you know, in the meantime, I just told Susan I would help her. So she gave me a job to do some filing. And that was good because I got to see, you know, sort of an overview of, you know, the returns issues as, as all the authors were writing in to ask questions and find out why there were some big deductions on their earnings reports. Right. And so so that was a very good overview. And yeah, it's it's kind of a long explanation. <laughs> no, it's a long lengthy situation this this entire thing. What was being filed and why did Susan need support with that? I presume there was a, a lot of work that needed to be done. Yeah, so so what we did as a group was we all we're looking at our earnings statements and we were looking at them together and sharing them so that we could understand, you know, was there a trend going on or, um, you know, was everybody seeing the same thing? And then so, so quickly, everybody realized that, yes, we were all seeing like minus numbers on our earnings statements. You know, there's authors that have had their earnings clawed back so much that their their earnings statements actually show negative numbers. In other words, they actually owe audible money. And so, you know, everybody individually wrote into ACX. They didn't get answers. Sometimes they didn't even get responses to the emails. Sometimes we get cut and paste answers with the wrong, you know, someone else's name on them even. Mm. Um, and so it was quite concerning. Yeah. But what this really did is when you look at something where you see many different examples of it, you can see, well, yes, this isn't just a one-off thing. This is, you know, really happening where we all got our, our returns clawed back, number one, which we all knew. You know, the next thing with this, you know, a bunch of us writing in is that you see that, you know, they tell us what happened, but not why and not how. Right. And the why and the how are key to getting to the bottom of this. 
Yeah. So this was all to do with that kind of glitch that we spoke about on the podcast last week with Susan about the returns data, right? That was all kind of put through on that one day in, in October last year. Yeah, it started that way. You know, that that then segued into, you know, we had the Authors Guild involved and Ali, the, the Alliance of Independent Authors and the Society of, the, of Authors in the UK. And, you know, that culminated in a, a meeting that Mary Rasenberger of the Authors Guild had with, with Audible. And, and so we did get some concessions, but um, we haven't actually seen the things that they've promised yet because we have not seen any changes on the dashboard. Mm. We haven't had any further communications saying that something's implemented or not implemented, and not in a formal, you know, correspondence with authors and, and rights holders who have contracts with Audible. Yeah. You know, they gave us a date of March 31st now that w- it will be fixed. But, you know, that's a long time from December. Yeah. It's a long time from January when the effective date was supposed to be. And this is a big tech company. They already have all that information. It would be very easy to make the changes much more quickly. Yeah, of course. And so while we appreciate that they've made some changes, we haven't actually seen them yet. We've got the promise, but not the result. So are you still doing this filing kind of assistant with all this evidence and screenshots and everything that's being gathered? Or are you assisting in other ways now? I'm assisting in other ways. But I'm basically looking at the numbers and trying to understand, you know, with very limited data, how they're calculated. And more importantly, what I think it should be, you know, when you start to look at the other audiobook sellers, because that's what Audible is. It's just an audiobook seller, basically. They're very transparent in their reporting. They um, report on gross sales at a certain percentage, and that's what you get. With Audible, that's just really difficult to figure out because they use net sales instead of gross sales and other accounting methodologies that, in a nutshell, you don't end up getting what you think you get when they, they lure you in with promises of, you know, 40% royalties and 25% royalties. They imply that it's based on the selling price, but it's really not. So so that's what I've been doing. In terms of the contracts that you sign, it's essentially if you're exclusive, you're going to get 40% of the retail price for each sale. And if you're non-exclusive, you're going to get 25%, right? Right. How is it possible for them to then kind of use number trickery essentially to pay authors less. How's that happening? And how did you find that out? So there's this term called net sales. And it basically means that, you know, whenever you sell something, say you sold a book for $20, an audiobook, that audiobook, you know, if you get 40% of that, we'll just, just call it 50 to make it easy. That's $10. What Audible does is they say there are certain deductions that come off the top before we even calculate that percentage. So instead of it being a $20 audiobook that a 50% number is based on to give you $10, they'll claim there were deductions from that $20 to make it like $16. And so you get half of that and it's only $8, right? So that's one thing they do. In business, net sales is a very common term, but that's not, not how Audible uses that number. So you don't start with the number of $20. You start with a number that's like, you know, much less than that. Significantly lower. Yeah. And that's what they, they calculate the percentage on. So you're getting a percentage of a lower number. So that's one thing. And then the second thing they do is a lot of the sales through Audible are through member credits, right? Yeah. So over the last year, a lot of the sales have been predominantly member credits, like more so than before. There's a number of reasons why that could be, and I won't get into them right now, but 
in that uh, member credit category, it's supposed to be a pool of money that is divided amongst all the audiobooks that are sold in the store. And they've admitted that they're not doing that. They've said that they've applied what they call a floor rate. And their justification for applying that floor rate is that they said the rate that they calculated is too low. So in their generosity, they bumped it up to what they call a floor rate. And in other words, they're saying that we're going to pay you a minimum amount per audiobook because our calculations are just coming out to too low of a number. And of course, I quickly realized that the calculation in the contract isn't the calculation they were using to, to compute our earnings. It is quite complex math stuff. And I know that you've been into this in a hell of a lot of detail in your blog posts, which are available on the audiblegate.com website. But essentially what it boils down to is that ACX and Audible are telling authors and rights holders one thing, and the reality is actually a lot less than that. That's right. So Jacob, they basically have told us a complicated formula that they use And now they've admitted that they are not using it. They've never admitted that before. We questioned the earnings statements, but now they have admitted that they are using this floor number. But the bigger question is, we have no, we have no input whatsoever into how the selling prices are set. We have no input whatsoever into deciding what books get returned or not. We have no input over promotional sales prices or, or free books or, you know, double credit. Um, trial memberships, all that stuff that goes into this pool number that they supposedly calculate, they control 100% of those variables that go into that pool. So you have to go full circle and ask, okay, so if your pool rate is too low that you had to put in a floor, well, whose fault is that? Audible, you're the ones that do 100% of the calculations. Right. And have you approached Audible with this or is that still something that's kind of work in progress? We haven't been able to to speak with them. We we would love to have a discussion with Audible about this very thing. But, you know, that ended with the cancelled meeting a few months ago that was never had between the Authors Guild and Audible, the meeting that I was supposed to be at. And so it was cancelled a few hours before it was supposed to happen. That's the last we know. Just going back to this floor and the credits issue, I understand if someone buys an audiobook with, should we say, cash for the retail price, you know, they pay $14.99 or $18.99 or whatever it is for them to own that audiobook. A percentage of that, which should be up to 40%, goes to the rights holder. In reality, because of the way that they're calculating, it's actually a lot less than. 40% of that price that's been paid. But one credit is not equal to the retail price of an audiobook. That's right. They don't give us much information. So so the, the easiest thing to say is, you know, they come up with some net sales number that's actually a mystery to us. We can't reverse engineer to find out what the gross sales were because we just are not given that information. So they put a number on a report that we can't verify and they say, hey, you get 52% of that. That's how it works. And that number is completely influenced by them. They decide the prices of the audiobooks. They decide the amount that one credit is going to be worth. They decide what this pot is that they're going to be basing this floor off and basing this 52% off. And you get paid based upon their decisions. Exactly. So when you were talking about the cash sale, Mm. that again is based on net sales. And, you know, in theory... 
it should be if it's a 1995 book, we would get 40% or 25% of that. But Audible also distributes to Apple Books. And probably the vast majority of Apple Books come through ACX. I, I don't know, but I'm guessing because at one time they had the exclusive contract with Apple. So I'm thinking that it's probably still a very high number. Yeah. Um, but what Audible does on our earnings reports is they don't report the Audible sales separate from the Apple sales when it's an a la carte cash sale. They lump them together. Apple has the right to set their own prices, I believe. And, you know, it's their store. And Audible has the right to set their own prices too. The the only one that doesn't have the right is us, the rights holders, which is quite ironic. If Audible make a decision to run a, a discount, a special offer, does that then impact you even more? Yes, exactly. And, you know, they don't tell you when they put your books on sale either, right? So, you know, if they drop your $30 book down to $5, you don't even know until you get your earnings report, which is probably six or seven weeks after the fact. And you'll see, oh, I got tons of sales. Oh, but wait, I didn't make any money. That is absolutely outrageous. This is just mind-blowing. Yeah. And you know you know what else Jacob is mind-blowing is on their dashboard, they only show units. They don't show dollars. So if this was another store that reported sales as they happen, you would see one unit at $5 and you'd be like, oh, what's going on there? And you, you could be angry or maybe you would even be happy and you'd go, hey, you know what? I'm going to go throw some ad money on this and direct some people to get my book at $5. And you know that'll maybe bump up my book a bit in the charts and I'll get more read through on my following books in the series or something like that. But we can't even promote that way because we don't know what's happening. They don't tell us. So the only way to figure that out would be quite literally to go and sit on the Audible website every day and go through your entire catalog refreshing, then you might be able to see that one was... Well, yeah, you, you'd think that would be a straightforward way of doing it. But then you have to remember that they have different prices and different um, geolocations. So different countries, you know, audible.com versus Audible UK, right? They're going to have different prices on each site. Yeah. And then also, there's also different prices, whether you're a member or a non-member. So you, if you're not a member, you won't see the member-only pricing. So you, you see two sets of prices depending on who you are. It's you know still not easy, even if you, you knew that. You're the one that pays for the production of this book, and yet you're the one that pays the cost when they make a decision to, to discount it. It seems like this is potentially something that would affect not just independent authors, but any book on Audible. I would think so. I, you know, I don't know if authors that are, you know, their audio is through publishers, if they're asking their publishers right now, but they should. Who is determining the pricing? Is it your publisher that you signed the contract with, you know, assuming a certain rate because I mean when you sign a contract with someone you go look on the store and you see what the prices are and you go okay x percent of of 1995 okay I, in my head I can figure out what that would be well the same percent of five dollars maybe you wouldn't have signed that contract what would you say to a potential author who wants to make an audiobook and were considering going through ACX what advice would you give them I would say stop make sure you understand everything and don't read what is on the Audible site as fact. Talk to some other authors, see if you can find some authors that will share um, what they actually earn. And I don't mean necessarily total earnings, although that would be really good to make an informed decision. But to look at, okay, if it's a $20 book, how much money are you actually getting? And, and just, you know, when that author tells you, like, just factor that in to your decision as to whether you're even going to break even, let alone make a profit. 
Yeah. In my blog post, I do have some some calculations that you can work through, either whether you do it yourself or if you go through an audiobook publisher, just as examples. Because I, I think that, you know, the numbers may may be different in, in everybody's case, but the walkthrough of the steps and the people that take money out at each step of the way, those are the same. So it's just it's good to know that because it's exciting when you think of having your book narrated. I mean it just sounds great. It brings your characters to life and you can get caught up in all that, but do the math because you don't want to find out after the fact you've spent, you know, $6,000 on one audiobook in a series, say, and committed to other ones. And then you find out too late that it's probably going to be, you know, 10 years, if ever, before you even break even. That leads on to the the point that this is not just affecting ACX and Audible, but the audiobook industry as a whole, they have enough control of this to be able to undercut basically every other service available at the moment in order to make sure that theirs is the only viable one. And so it seems like Audiblegate started with Audible and a problem with audiobooks being returned and losing money that way and has now become this much bigger industry-wide issue. That's right. And, you know, authors, you know, already before the returns issue, it took them, you know, sometimes a few years to break even. And so you just count on that audiobook continuing to earn money for years and years. And of course, you know, books, the sales do taper off after a while. But authors didn't realize exactly what the cost-benefit ratio was until now. Mm. I think that you know, all of us thought that we were earning more than we were until we got locked into that contract. And quite honestly, a seven-year contract, there's probably good reason for that because they know you're going to find out in a year or so when you don't actually make your money back and you're going to look at walking somewhere else with your audiobooks. But we couldn't, right? You know, it's more than just corporate greed. It's just not right. It's, It's evil. One other thing I wanted to mention, Jacob, is Audible has vertical integration in their organization. And what I mean by that is they sell audiobooks in their store under the name Audible. They distribute audiobooks to Apple and to the Audible store, their own store on the ACX platform. And they control the production in terms of matching the authors and the narrators. And they also have their own audiobook production studios through which they produce the Audible Studio titles, as well as uh, Brilliance Audio, which is 100% owned by Amazon. They have their hands in every part of the process. And what that means for us is that here we are, we're the ACX books, I guess you could call us. We provide 100% of the content at 100% of the cost, typically at a lower price point. And then next to that, you have Audible Studios and Brilliance, and they're also fairly low priced. In comparison to the big publishers like Penguin Random House, Macmillan, HarperCollins, like like all the, the, the big publishers who have higher prices, but they also seem to have price ranges. So we don't have that as, as indies. You know, we have a book that's eight hours long. It's always $19.95. That's set by Audible. We can't change it. But it appears that the bigger publishers have price ranges for that eight-hour book. A new release might be priced higher than a backlist title, for example. I don't know whether they have the ability to set their own prices, but that is discriminatory to us if we don't. In other words, if Audible has two sets of rules for two different customer types. Yeah, and even if it's not them that has the control of setting the price, Audible are therefore doing it. And like you said, they're not doing it for any of the indie authors. 
Exactly. And so, and so we're, we're kind of, are we like the bargain basement books in the store designed to put price pressure on the big publishers? It could be, we could be being used for that purpose. And apparently the ACX books are by far the biggest volume of books on Audible, according to Audible itself. So that's another way that they can exert power over, you know, big corporations in in their own right that are setting their own prices, right? They can use that pressure to drive the price down for them. Yeah. Or maybe they use the high prices of those publishers in some way to disadvantage us. I mean, I could I could go into lots of detail on on other things and I won't, but it's just food for thought, right? Just go in the Audible store and and look. Yeah, I think it's a really important point actually that if they have that amount of control over the indie authors and they make up the bulk of the work, as you say, they are pressuring those who are in themselves big corporations to change their prices, to lower them or raise them or have a range at least. And it's like, where does their control end? <laughs> exactly. Does it end? We don't know. We're, we're still trying to find out. Still trying to find out. Fantastic. Yes. One thing Audible is not is generous to anybody but themselves. Well, thank you so much for your time, Colleen. It was great to have you on. Okay. Thanks for everything. Have a good night. As you heard there, This is a huge discovery that Colleen has made that could potentially change the way in which the audiobook industry works. Just this week, there were news articles about how Amazon are beginning to pull ebooks from libraries, making them only accessible via their own distribution platform. This monopolization of other people's creations is a pattern. They are a very, very large pond, and we are very, very small fish. Um, There I go again with the strange animal analogies. But in all seriousness, the AudibleGate campaign has already had some brilliant successes and will keep working for more. Going forward, we will be investigating how AudibleGate is affecting the audiobook industry on a broader scale in an age where content consumption is increasingly headed to streaming services and different content distribution platforms are constantly competing to be the top dog. Woof, woof. Anyway, that's enough from me. So take care, everyone, and we will see you in the next episode. If you'd like to read more about AudibleGate, please visit audiblegate.com, where you'll find further analysis into the growing situation with regular updates, including Susan May and Colleen Cross's original blog posts. And please share this podcast on all your social media with hashtag AudibleGate to keep the momentum going. This is a serious situation with potential legal and financial ramifications, and it's really important we reach as many people as possible. Thanks to Orchestralis, Serpent Sound Studios, CNBC, and Amazon for the music and quotes used in this episode. Written and directed by Jason Lasky and Jacob Daniels. Edited by Jacob Daniels. This is Audible Gate.